Welcome back to A Fine Time for Healing, a place where your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being are all that matters. So put your feet up, relax, and enjoy today's show. We have with us today Eileen Martyr Merman, who is a spiritual healer and licensed psychotherapist. For the past 45 years, she specializes in integrating spirituality, meditation, essential oils, and other alternative healing in her work. She lives in New York with her husband and her two cats. And uh, Eileen has some wonderful things to say. We're going to talk today. Uh, I got to get it in there. Okay, there it is. <laughs> How I think I should be is BS, from hiddenness to open hearted healing memoir, not just for professional women. And I have to tell all of you that it's really for everyone. So, um, you know, it's if you're a man, if you're a woman, if you're professional, if you're not, it doesn't matter. You're going to get a lot of great information out of this. Good morning, Eileen, and welcome. Thank you, Randy. Pleasure to meet you. Okay. You know, when I first saw this title, I'm like, hmm, how I think should be BS. I, you know, and I thought, well, what could she possibly be saying about that? Because the way we think is the way we think. However, then I thought, okay, well, I also know that we tell ourselves a lot of lies. We have a lot of limiting beliefs and we carry on the programming and conditioning from our childhood. And then I realized, okay, now I, I really get what the title is about. And that's exactly what it is. It's true. It's true. And we, and we carry on from our lineage also, right? So everything gets passed down. In, in, in the trauma gets passed down, but also the ability to survive gets passed down because here we are in 2023, you know, living vibrant lives. So in spite of all the stuff, so... Exactly, exactly. In your introduction, you say, and this I think will speak to everybody. As a child, I unconsciously developed a powerful manifesto. Don't be who you are. Stay safe and hidden at all costs. So How many of us feel that way? Uh, probably most people. Well, most people that are awake to it right? You might not be awake to it. And then you don't know that that's the programming that's been, you know, set, you know, sort of like being stuck in the matrix. Right. Right. And was there a particular difference about the way you were brought up versus the way someone else might be, might have been brought up? I think that, um, you know, over the years I've worked with people from different cultures uh, with different religious backgrounds. And I have to say that it seemed, and, and I work not just with women, but with men as well. Okay. And uh, people of all different types of uh, gender identities. And it seems to be the message for survival, no matter where you come from, who you are, how you identify and how you've chosen to live. And I do believe that we all have this calling to wake up, to wake up to what we're thinking, what we're feeling and what's real for inside of us. You know, it's a big thing, you know, get in touch with what your path is, what's your path. I don't think you could really get in touch with what your path is unless you also identify all these limiting uh, 
beliefs that aren't even conscious. We want to wake up to what's going on inside of us. Mm-hmm. That's so true. Yeah. Right. Because we are all about survival. And unless we're shown a very, very healthy way to do this, and many, most people aren't, because, you know, unless you have a very awakened, aware parent who knows how to put all of this into their children, um, most of us have to figure this out on our own. Uh, and the other thing is that you are, you were born into a Jewish family, as I was. And um, that comes with it, its whole, uh, all the customs and the tendencies and all the traditions and all the things. And of course, I mean, I was raised with Jewish guilt. That's how my mother raised me. Guilt, Mm -hmm. you know, that's how she controlled her daughters, through guilt. So, (laughs) So we grow up with some very strange messages. Yeah, it's really true. And um, to not be the self is very disorienting. And then you learn how to adjust to being disoriented. And you think that that's normal or regular or, or, uh, or reality. And it's actually not reality, but, but as a child, and as a child, many of us know there's something off, but we have to tote the line, right? We have to be a certain way. So in order to be appreciated in the family, in order to be appreciated in school and so on. So exactly. Fitting in is very important. So in your chapter one, you talk about being born with a force, you know, and I, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, wow, so many of us came into the world this way from that generation. And I never really thought about how cold and sterile it was. But um, talk a little bit about what that experience was, because I could completely relate. It was exactly what my birth experience was, but I never really looked back and said, you know, wow, that really had to have an impact on me. Yeah. So, you know, over the years, I've done all sorts of work on myself, right? And I still found that physically, in many ways, I was very limited. And then trauma, even though we were working with trauma as therapists over the years, trauma became like a a, a frontliner, right? The, the headline on the newspapers or um, certainly on the internet. And I started to say like, I had trauma from the very beginning. And even though there's obviously trauma in, in our history, um, there was literally in this very moment when you're coming into the world completely raw, completely vulnerable, completely fragile, there was this um, force that came upon me. And I believe it's affected me. In fact, my subtitle is From Hiddenness to Open Hearted. I believe that the hiddenness is a result of that. In order to survive this instrument, which killed many of the children and really injured a lot of the the, the mother, the mothers, the birthing mothers, um, I think that affected me in, in many ways that I still work with today. I'm not hidden, but I could feel anxiety sometimes at a very deep level. It's like, it's like it doesn't rise up until there's something really shocking, which I mentioned a few of them in the book, but um, I think it really is the ground, the ground that I was um, raised within. And and that had nothing to do with my parents at all. That had to do with the conditions of the times. Right. And so you're talking about forcep births, right? 
where they yank you out of the mother. And the other thing about it is at at that time, because I am, we're only four years different. So I was in the same generation at that time, mothers were put to sleep. So they didn't have to feel anything. So the baby is born. They don't even know it. The baby doesn't bond with the mother. It's taken, it's cleaned by strangers. The first person that sees it is really the father. They take it to the father, but the mother really doesn't bond with that baby immediately, immediately, which is very different than how they do it these days. That's so true. So true. So it really does have an impact on how we start out life because that is a terrifying experience for That's a right. soul to come into this world like that. That's right. And in fact, I would say that the first person I probably bonded with, and probably you as well, was the doctor. You know, who who's who's pulling you out, touching you first, and then the nurses. So here we are in the helping professions. <laughs> so interesting. There's a lot to think about and to ponder, and it's it's all been uh, quite a journey. Yes, yes, yes. I'm just okay. Um, I know that you um you suffered uh with some fertility issues miscarriages things like that which is absolutely heartbreaking so you had you had one child right now all that was just like just happened and everything and then after that there was a series of miscarriages um tell us how that affected you well so I actually had my first miscarriage before I was pregnant with Josh. Okay. I didn't think much of it. They said, oh, that's that's a common thing. Don't worry about it. And, you know, I was, I was 28 at that point. And I said, okay, I won't worry about it. And then I got pregnant a few months later with Josh, and that was a, a full-term pregnancy. Um, I had a very difficult labor, though, um, because I didn't have enough progesterone. So the way... The way it affected me was it didn't make any sense. I, I was so confused. Here I was, you know, I was very athletic and I was as healthy as you could be back in your late 20s and um, not knowing about nutrition back in those days. And um, but I was still in pretty good shape and so on. It just didn't make sense. We went to all these different doctors to try to figure out what was going on years later they came out with the saliva tests and uh, for hormones and I took it and I was devastated when I got my results because I had practically no progesterone in my system. Wow. And that's what you need to carry pregnancy. If so they had known. If they, and, and this isn't that long ago. So this was in 83 and I gave birth with Josh in 84. And then afterwards, I guess I had less progesterone for all those uh, other long, longer term uh, mm miscarriages you know and, and I, I bring this up because infertility is, is a unusually large problem right now for women um yeah. i don't you know i don't remember it being that way in my 20s when i you know my friends and 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 me were you know planning to have babies having babies yeah so it may take some of us a little bit longer but Infertility right now, so many young women are going through in vitro fertilization right now. Um, I don't really understand what that's about. I know it's it's a 
really difficult experience. My daughter went through it four times and um, she has a beautiful baby boy now, you know, but it was, it's very, very hard on, um, on a woman to go through that. And so, you know, this whole experience of wanting a baby and not being able to either get pregnant or carry the baby to full term is a very traumatic thing for a woman. Right. And there were no books about it, right? There were no books about it. So there was no internet, right? There were no groups, nothing. So, uh, and, and I didn't know anybody else who was going through it. So I felt very alone mm -hmm. and I, you know, I probably had a low level of depression early on. Mm -hmm. Um, but I kept going. I said, okay, what am I going to do? And and the truth of the matter is that as a therapist, I think I became, you know, I, I really used my experiences and always have used my experiences as learning. Like, okay, what's this about? What am I going to get from this? How can I learn? And how could I teach others? Which is why I wrote the book, because I've always felt this thing that I, I could help others. Mm -hmm not just my small practice or the, the small classes that I teach. Um, and I just kept on as, as they, as the grateful dead would say, as the doodah man, you know, kept on trucking like the doodah man always showing up. Oh, you know, even though I would walk around and I would see like, there was a methadone clinic near the, uh, near where we used to live and where I worked near the rehab center where I worked. And there were tons of people on methadone. It's like, I can't, I can't have more than one pregnancy, full pregnancy. And these people had one in the oven and two in the stroller and they were, well, at least they were doing methadone, right? So they were in, in rehabilitation and not, not out on the streets, but still I, it didn't make sense. And then I had to look at the larger picture and, and looking at the larger picture of how, how can I, there must be something for me to do here besides, you know, wallowing in, in my self-pity about that the life that I thought I was going to have isn't the life that I had. So, um, and that really helped because I just kept working on myself, always transforming myself. I still work on myself and, um, and working with others and, and being able to be with people in their sorrow and their pain and their loss. I was, I also was able to do, um, I was living at Long Island in Long Island uh, for 39 and a half years, raising Josh out there. And I was doing some uh, bereavement groups. You know, I was able to be with people in their sorrow and their pain, whether it was because of adults that lost their children from AIDS, parents, I was working with a group there. And I worked with other kinds of bereavement groups because I could, I didn't question people. I never said you have to move on. I never said, there's another way. I just said, let me be with you. Let me listen to you. And I, I get it, even though my story is different than your story. Mm -hmm. That's a hard thing to do. And, and, you know, as you're saying this, I landed on your quote, which you say, loss has been my teacher. I am no longer afraid of it. Now mm -hmm. I know that part of the fabric of life is to live and to lose and to live with loss. That is really profound. Um, because 
many people will say, you know, what did I do wrong? What did I do in my last life? Why am I being punished? Instead of having the perspective that these things, these are things that we all go through and they're not supposed to be life sentences. They're life lessons. They're ways that we build and get stronger and grow. It's really true. There are opportunities. What's that Chinese symbol about um, difficulty? I think it's difficulty is really about opportunity. And um, it's just really true. And, uh, and and it hasn't been easy. I'm not saying that it hasn't, that it's easy. Um, but, um, but there's joy within the, within the difficulty. I agree. And, you know, pretty much everyone that I've had on this podcast, and I've been doing it for over 12 years and done interviewed over 500 people, but everyone who's in helping fields and most people are all have his histories of pain and loss. And it's when they have um, triumphed over it is when they now can become, um, you know, beacons of light for other people. Yeah. yeah, It's the way it happens. I wanted to talk to you about um, control because in, in chapter seven, Why Awaken, you say, um, part of me was focused on stay, staying safe staying safe. I wanted guarantees and to stay in control as if that were possible. I stayed tight and asleep. What do you mean by that? (laughs) Oh, gosh. Um, You know, when we wake up, we wake up to the truth. We think we're in reality. We think we know the truth. But when we start to really be honest with ourselves, you know, to know that I have anxiety, you know, I wanted to be this hippie, cool girl, you know, to to realize I had anxiety that I could actually have depression, that I could actually have physical problems. You know, here I was this athlete and now I have physical problems. It's like, really? So there is no control. We just we just moved. We sold our house after almost 40 years. And if I thought I had any any semblance of control, after all the work I've done going through selling your house and moving and then coming into a little apartment after living in a house, I realized, you know what? There's no control. I know, I, I know, I know this. There's only the unknown. I know, I know this. There's only uncertainty. I know, I know this. And here, here we go again. And being here, being unsettled also, we're, we're not even here a month. Friday will be a month. Oh, wow. So like, you know, it's like I'm, I'm living everything I teach and that I've gone through, but it's like a deeper level. Thank you very much. Here we go. <laughs> yes. Control. It, it's so important for everyone to understand that, you know, the expression going with the flow, there's really a reason for that. Yeah. Because... Anytime you think you're in control of anything, you're so wrong, right? You know, it's, but it's hard to let that go if that's been something that you've held on to that has made you feel somewhat safe. Um, But it ultimately will become a major problem for you in your life if you don't learn to let that go. Yeah, yeah. Somebody, I I was posting on uh, Instagram and um, 
Facebook about um, the move, you know, what I was going through and so on. And one woman who's a couple of, at least 10 years older than me, she said, or maybe even more, um, she said, you know, about it's seeing all the 40 years of the life that's gone by. I said, I hear you. I agree with that. Yeah, there's sadness and grief in that. But it's really been a process of letting go. I can't take, I couldn't take all my clothes with me. I couldn't take all my furniture with me. Mm. I, you know, I sold a ton of stuff. Some stuff didn't sell. I had a, I was watching and crying mm. as they were crushing the furniture from my office because I couldn't find somebody that would take the donation. Mm. But, you know, so letting go, letting go, letting go. Letting go. Yeah. Not easy. <laughs> and also, I think you, you know, you talk about struggling with the idea of conflict <clears throat> and, you know, in relationships. Um, what did yep. you learn about conflict and how important it is for us to, to have it in, in the right way? So I used to think that you shouldn't have conflict in relationships that everything should be nicey nice and flow and just be, I don't know, sort of like fantasy land. Um, and then I realized, you know, I was married pretty young. So I realized pretty young that um, it's just part of a relationship. It's part of life. I mean, I don't think there's any really good relationship that I have that we haven't had some conflict and, and I need to talk about it. We need to, we need to um, transform it, you know, be with it, be in relationship with it and then move on from there. Because if we don't then talk about control, then we're holding all the stuff inside of us and then it's not a real relationship. That's true. That's true. Um <clears throat> What is healthy conflict and unhealthy? What's the difference between healthy and unhealthy conflict? So, you know, for me, a big thing is to always own our own stuff, even if we think we're right <laughs> about whatever, whatever the topic is, whatever we said, whatever we shared, or whatever's going on. But to own my stuff, you know, like, what's this about for me? You know, what where? Where am I, where was I coming from? Why was this a problem? And the more I own my stuff and I could do it very quickly now, because if I'm in a session with somebody, I need to own my stuff constantly in order to be open to receiving what I'm hearing, feeling and uh, mm -hmm. perceiving with somebody. True. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, unhealthy is when we don't own our shot. I was saying, and when we don't know no shit <laughs> and we put it on the other, it's all you, it's all you, it's all you. And the truth is nothing is all somebody else. When we're in relationship, it's ours and theirs. Mm. So true. Yeah. You say true, true, true freedom comes from being with the dissonances and difficulties and not getting rid of anything, but being willing to willing to develop a relationship with what we feared and that which we pushed away. Wow. Yep. <laughs> That's big. That's big. Yeah. Um, and then you come up, you say the question, why awaken? So 
you talk about awakening and how important it was in your journey. Why is it important to awaken? And really, let's start with what awakening means to you. Awakening means being in touch with where you are as best as you can, you know, in little steps. And just, if you just... If you just allow yourself to be in touch with the littlest thing of where you are, I always do this every morning and you just stay with it at least for a few minutes. You know, I'm able to do it for much longer, but if you stay with it for a few minutes, there's something that happens in your body, mind, and spirit where you feel more present and then you're able to deal with relationships, going to work, walking the dog, feeding the cat, you know, whatever the situation is. And so awakening is really about being present to where we are. And then we can be in touch with the world as it is. And it's not such a pretty world. So if we're at least in touch with where we are and we get freaked out by some stuff that's going on, well, we could shut off the news. We could come back into ourselves we could dim the lights or we could go outside, sit outside, go for a walk, you know, go into nature, you know, have a cup of tea, <laughs> what, whatever it is, so that you could just be more of yourself. It's really about becoming who you were born to be. Which is very different than this woke generation which is not about awakening at all yeah i've heard about it <laughs> i guess you have <laughs> i guess you have it's really it's a it's a very strange um word it, because it doesn't fit the situation it doesn't fit the mindset at all yeah it, it, I, <clears throat> I was actually confused by it i i just didn't understand and um I think people, some people, not all, obviously, were being are being misled that it's more about becoming in touch with your true, the true self, and being in in true reality mm -hmm. than this other uh, this other thing that's happening. Exactly. Exactly. You talk, in your book, you talk about all your um, your favorite people and um, all your favorite musicians. And, and I'm like, oh, I like that person. I like that person. I, I loved um, Carole King, James Taylor. They're they're just my, you know, yeah, Jesse Colin Young, Dylan, um, the Allman Brothers, Joan Baez. I mean, all really, really good people. So I just wanted to say how much I related to that music. And I still do. <laughs> it's still oh. to me the best, right? I do love it. <clears throat> you say, I started to pay attention to my inner voice. As I listened to it, it became louder and took more of a prominent place inside of me. I felt less threatened about sensing and knowing about negative things, as well as those things that would help me. I wasn't willing to turn myself and my intuition off any longer. Yeah. Sometimes it was helpful. Sometimes it was devastating. When was it? Why? When was it helpful and when was it devastating? Well, I, th I would say it's helpful every day. Helpful every day to be in touch with where I am and, and what I'm picking up and, and so on. Mm -hmm. so, so I think that's all wonderful and good because it helps keep me on track and um, 
in touch. For, I'll just say a quick example was I always knew that this would work out for the apartment, for the move, but then going through the messiness wasn't so easy. Mm-hmm. But I always knew in my gut that everything was going to be okay, but I didn't know, okay, did it mean we were going to end up here, which we did, or was it, or were we going to end up renting an apartment? And I found some, I found some nice apartments to rent. But anyway, so um, that like recently came up. Was What's devastating is, um, you know, I, I knew about, I I had a dream and I knew about 9-11. I think it was the day before, two days before I had a dream about it. And um, when I was going to Israel many years ago, oh no, it couldn't have been many years ago. It was 9-11. So it was, uh, um, it was August of that year. Um, some of my clients were very upset with me that I was going to visit family in Israel. And um, I said, why? It could happen here too. So to know that I, I I am in touch with a stream of consciousness is all I could say that it is, um, where I I I know some things that are devastating. That what said, year, I, what year are you talking about when you went there? Uh, well, I, I used to go before the pandemic every year. Okay. Um, since uh, my brother moved there a long time ago, Josh is thirty nine, so thirty eight years ago he moved there. 39 years ago, a long time ago. And so I used to go every year and, you know, there's a lot of terrorist stuff there, but you know what? United States has the worst, um, the worst level percentage of shootings, these crazy shootings than anywhere else in the world. So, um, we have Israel, Israel's prepared. They're prepared for it. They know how to handle it. Yeah. But there was a year, uh, you know, I asked the year because there was a year that my daughter uh, wanted to go to birthright and it was really in the middle of some very, I I can't remember exactly what was going on in Israel, but it was a very chaotic time there Um, and I wouldn't let her go. But, you know, years later when my son wanted to go, it was fine and I let him go with no problem. So um, I have a niece that lives there um, in Jerusalem, you know, and... um, she absolutely loves it. You know, the people who live there, um, that's not an issue for them. They love their country. They love living there. And uh, that the threat is not one that um, dissuades them from enjoying that lifestyle. It's true. That's really true. So, okay. Um, chapter 19, you talk about aggression. And this paragraph hit resonated with me for, from so many people I've talked to. And I like the way you put this, but you say, when there is too much focus on bringing a child up to be good, respectful, appreciative, and not questioning of authority in any way, there are often problems because the child doesn't learn to question or to have their own creative ideas or intuition their actions have to pass through an approval screen before they act on them. I love the way you say that. You know, I've had people say to me, nobody, I wasn't prepared for this world. I wasn't prepared for the things that I was going to come up against because I had an idyllic life. Right. You know, so what what are your thoughts on that? 
Well, we need to own our aggression. You know, we need to know that we have it in us. How else would we get up and go to the bathroom? If I mean, that literally takes a, a certain level of aggression. It's on the physical level. But if we don't take care of ourselves and go to the bathroom when we need to, then we're styming ourselves, styming styming ourselves, right? Styming ourselves and and stopping a, a natural process. There's this great article. I think I quoted it um, by a woman. Actually, it was in a book, a Gestalt therapy book, because I was a Gestalt therapist for many years. And Laura Pearls, and she said that. What happened with the Gestalt therapy people was they were all Jewish psychotherapists and she was a dancer living in Austria. And as the Nazis started to come over, they all left Austria and they went down to South Africa and they developed the, the theory of Gestalt therapy. And what she was saying was when you're told to act like a soldier, when you're told to be a certain way, that's how you develop into a fascist. And, and that's what's happened. And it's obviously been going on ever since uh, in hidden ways, but now it's coming out more over the past, I guess, six years or so, seven years. So um, if we own our aggression, then we're not gonna act it out. When we own our aggression, we could have healthier bodies. We could um, eat, eat healthier and um, just, live healthier and have have more vitality you know a lot of people do kundalini yoga to help them feel that energy rising i don't do kundalini yoga but it's the same kind of a thing you know we want to allow ourselves to feel our life force and if we're capping it down then 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 we're losing like probably at least 50 percent of who we are so life force and and our own aggression are really kind of one in the same in your mind in your opinion i think aggression creativity um just vitality all of it is that same life force coming through us mm-hmm. and then it gets all screwy because of the lessons we've taught been taught by the culture by our families by the by the lineage by our teachers and so on um and, and how we think we should be, you know, I'm a wife, I should be this way. I'm a mother, I should be this way. I'm a grandmother, I should be that way. And um, I'm a knitter, I should be this way. So. And, and the operative word in all of those is should. Right. I always tell people that they're like, well, shouldn't I? Or, you know, isn't this expected? I said, there's no shoulds. There's no shoulds. You, you have to do what's right for you. Um, as long as you're not hurting anybody, as long as you're not making anybody else's life miserable, right? You right. get to do it your way. Right. That's, but that's that's an important piece that you sh- that you added, because a lot of people over the years, especially in the early years of therapy, they'll start to get a sense of themselves and start to feel empowered, and they'll bulldoze their way through life. I can do this. This is what I feel. This is who I am and so on. And they're not considering the other because, you know, talk about, you know, I know you talk about narcissism, talk about being like not focused on the self enough and then too focused on the self. And then there's, (laughs) I'm wearing a gray t-shirt and then there's all the gray in between, Mm -hmm. right? How can I be authentic and in relationship with others 
and have this healthy, it's really healthy aggression, healthy narcissism, healthy, uh, healthy, uh, everything, ego, whatever it is, yeah, healthy, everything, right? Healthy ego. And I have seen, um, you know, people who, who get it wrong like that, who think that it's just getting powerful and pushing their way through things is really setting boundaries and standing up for themselves. And, and that's not really what it's about. It's about doing what's best for you, protecting yourself, understanding what your needs are, what feels right for you, what feels wrong for you, um, and being the, the gatekeeper of those things, you know, but you don't have to do it in an aggressive way. Exactly. It's just that, you know, it's for some people that transition between being completely passive and compliant to the point of now setting boundaries can feel so extreme. And some people don't know what to do with that. I always tell people, you know, they're like, when I start setting boundaries, I feel kind of bitchy. And I'm like, yeah, because, you know, sometimes you got to swing a little farther to the other way before right. you come back to center, you know, but, but that's okay. It, I think it's part of the process. So true. Um, so you spent a lot of years longing to escape life and how are some of the ways that you did that or tried to do that, I should say? Oh, well, certainly, um, thinking that the spiritual path was all about going beyond, talk about going beyond the ego, going beyond relationship, going away from instead of realizing it's being right here in the world, meditating, even, even with, there's no sirens right now, even with the sirens that are here in New York city quite a bit, mm -hmm. even with uh, a hurricane coming on the West coast of um, Florida today, you know, so just being with the difficulties and allowing them as best as we can and paying attention and being just being here, being here, being present. Mm -hmm. And this is a really important point um, because it's very important that we understand we are, you know, some of us want to be these spiritual beings. We want to be so cosmic and so, you know, ethereal and all of that thing. But, but I think the most important thing is to understand that we need to be grounded in this human experience, right? So um, people who want to escape the ego and escape the human experience, um, I don't believe that that's a really healthy way. I think there has to be a blend. You can embrace that, but you have to first understand that you're rooted in the hum human experience and bring that into it, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that took me a while to, to get, mm -hmm. you know, I really thought that um, the spiritual path was, was the key to, and the answer by going away from reality. It was actually going away from reality. I thought, oh, you know, you just sit there and you sing om, chant om and everything's <laughs> going to be wonderful. Well, that's, that's also bullshit. You know, it's, it doesn't make everything wonderful. So, um, it just helps you to escape. So escaping um, was, I thought it was the answer. I really, 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 really did. And it's not. And I think many people do. And I've had clients who went from being in a lot of pain in their lives 
to embracing, fully embracing this spiritual thing and sort of getting caught up in it and lost. Um, and they end up back in crisis. Wow. It doesn't take them, you know, it, it ultimately brings them back to crisis because we cannot escape the reality of our lives. That's really important. And some people will say, you know, well, you know, I should be, I should be perfect. I should be giving, I should be, you know, I'm here to help the world. And I said, that's not necessarily your role. Are you Gandhi? Are you Jesus? Are you Buddha? You know, yeah, there were certain entities that came here. That was their purpose. But for the average person, that's not our purpose. Our purpose isn't to be that pure essence. You know, we want to tap into it, but it's not about becoming that. We have to be these physical human beings that we are. That's why we're here. That's the experience we're going for here. So true. And to really, really embrace <coughs> that we're imperfect. We're imperfect and uh, going to make mistakes and uh, have to apologize and move on. And that's being more human. You know, it's about being like this real regular human being. Mm -hmm. And it's more the school of life instead of having to be the school of dropping out. It's more like dropping in. That's exactly, <laughs> that's an old expression, but yeah. I there know where does that come from. <laughs> right, drop, dropping in, dropping out. Right, that's an old one. But you know, but yeah, there you go. You coined it really well. Um, so yeah, we're talking about. So now we're talking about. Um, okay, so then you you just start discussion discussing nourishment, and I think most of us think of nourishment as the food and the vitamins and minerals and things that we take into our body. But you talk about nourishment in an, in a different way. So how do you see nourishment? So in, in the book, I started with um, this experience when I was a young, very young mother um, on an airplane and realizing that I had to put the oxygen mask on me first. I was sort of devastated that I had to put the oxygen mask on me first. Oh, because if I'm not here, I'm, what what good is it, the oxygen mask on the baby, if I'm not here? Right. So, and that's not a narcissistic statement. That's just the truth in that moment, right? I was the caretaker in that moment. And so... You know, if you just take that experience when you've been on a plane or uh, I, once we were on a boat, we had to uh, take the class with the life preservers, you know. The vests and everything. The vests and, all, and the little boats that you go on and all this kind of thing. Um, you know, it it sort of like turned my mind around and I think my heart around too, or maybe my heart was in the right place all the time, my mind wasn't. And... I realized, oh, so I have to put the nourishment in me first and not just the food that I eat, that too. But I have to really be with myself first in order to really be in relationship with whatever it is I'm doing and whoever it is I'm with. 
in the moment. Mm -hmm. So really it's a moment to moment practice for me at this point um, to be in relationship with where I am. And then I could open up to whatever it is that I'm in contact with during the day. This is yeah. This is a crucial point because um, this concept, and, and you call it nourishment, which is a great way to say it. Because when you talk about self-love, sometimes that sounds selfish to people, but when you say it as nourishment, it's it's a lot more palatable. You know, pun, no pun intended. But um, yeah. So, but you're right. Um, people think that giving, 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 giving is the way to live life. And yet, if you don't give to yourself first, if you don't nourish yourself first, you have nothing to really give. It's really true. And and I used to be always giving, 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 because I thought that's how I should be. And what I was supposed to be as a girl, as a teenager, as a young woman, so on and so on. And um, I, still, I still will give too much at times. Um, that said, if I don't nourish myself and all the different ways that I do, um, then there's nothing there. And and what could happen is you could become uh, resentful. If, if you're, and, and a really sensitive person will pick up if you're, if you're not being generous from your heart, if it's not authentic. So, but most people aren't going to pick it up. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you're giving, 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 cause that's what a good person is. That's not the way to re to reach being a compassionate human being. Being a compassionate human being means you're having compassion for yourself first. You're kind to yourself first. You're give you're forgiving yourself first. Otherwise, you're not really compassionate. And you're not really generous. You're giving yourself away, and then you feel empty, depleted, resentful, angry, arrogant. All the things that we really don't want to be. Well said. Thank you. Very true. Very true. You know, you talked about um, perfection before and and then, you know, so so now I'm kind of I've moved up to chapter 27 where you talk about imperfection. But you say, you know, what in the world ever made me think that perfection was the absolute goal? Why would I why would that be my pursuit of happiness? And why would I pursue an impossible task? Because the irony of it all is that there's imperfection everywhere we look a crack here, a blemish there. Something is flawed, confusion, illusion, delusion. Why do we get so hung up on this perfection thing? Is this a, this is part of control? <laughs> I think you're right. <laughs> I think it is. I think I think it's a part of control, and maybe the part of control is to not be in touch with who we really are in the moment and who we've been and where we come from. And I think it's related. As I'm saying this, I think it's related to avoiding shame. Hmm. Because there's this shame place that you need to go through and heal. We think that if, I know that we think that if we're imperfect in this way, that means we're not good or, or we should be ashamed of ourselves or something like that. But um, I, haven't for, I haven't thought this through. It just That's okay. now as we're talking. That's good. But I really think it's uh, avoiding that trap of self, you know, shaming yourself, self-hatred and so on. 
by trying to always be perfect, which I, I uh, so I'm involved in this knitting stuff. I love knitting, been doing it since Girl Scouts as a young girl. And for a while after I became a mom, I, I took up quilting because I loved the Amish and how they quilted and so on. Well, I didn't stay with quilting more than a couple of years because there's so much perfection that you had to do in quilting. It made me crazy. Mm -hmm. And what's great about knitting is you could sort I I don't have, I put my knitting over there, um, is you can make mistakes and it's okay. Sometimes you go back, we call it frogging, where you take out what you've knit and then you, then you, then you redo it. Or sometimes you could um, just like patch it up in a certain way. So, and years ago we sold jewelry, a lot of Navajo jewelry. We had a store called Purple Coyote out on Long Island. Mm. And there was one man that we bought um, a lot of his turquoise jewelry. And he said to the white people, us, he would sell, uh, he would make an imperfection in it because it wasn't spiritually the same uh, selling to a white person as to uh, a native person. And, um, and there was something very beautiful about that. So I knew that all the jewelry we were selling at the time had this in it. And that in fact felt very spiritual, that it was a conscious movement to have his um, beautiful turquoise uh, jewelry uh, have imperfection in it. And, um, and we sold a lot of his a lot, a lot, a lot of his beautiful uh, silver and turquoise. His name was Orv Orville Tassini, if anybody's into native. Oh, wow. You know, I was I was actually going to say, as we were talking about this, I remember, um, you know, I used to go to my kids' classes in elementary school and help out and everything. And I remember, I can't remember which, I have two, I can't remember which child it was, but I remember the the Native American unit. And I remember learning that Native Americans put little flaws in pretty much everything they do. And I also, so there's cultures that actually do this. There's the Japanese wabi-sabi, which, right, which, you know, they value the, the broken and the, you know, old and the cracked and, and, and those kind of things. Um, True. You know, but here in the United States, everybody's trying to, we're all trying to do it all right and be perfect, which is, you know, and talk about shame. All it, all it causes is it produces more shame because the more perfect you try to be, the more you shame yourself because you can't get it right. You know, it's impossible to get it right. Possible. Yeah. It's just, it, it's just a continuation of the whole neurotic story. Yeah. What if we are already the wholeness? Okay. Um, there's a quote in your chapter 33 about wholeness. You are already that which you seek mm. by Ramana Maharshi. Mm -hmm. um, and you say, what if we already, what if we're already the wholeness that we long for? And what is wholeness anyway? Aren't we whole? Aren't we perfect just as we are? So I would say we're whole and imperfect. So in, in that wholeness, there's imperfection. So we're born whole and immature. So as we grow, we can become more and more whole. So uh, more and more who we are. So 
it's almost like we're born whole and immature and then we take parts away from ourselves to survive so we become let's say fractured there's all different words that we use in the psychology wor- world whether it's fractured or wounded or damaged or something like that. So like in wabi-sabi, I mean, there's a a branch of the wabi-sabi where they put beautiful gold into the pottery when when there's a crack. I mean, I'm sure you've seen it because you talked about it. Mm -hmm. And um, instead of seeing the beauty of our imperfections within the wholeness, we're trying to eradicate it or uh, separate from it which makes us less and less and less whole. So wholeness is being in relationship, according to the way I think, being in relationship with as much of who we are and knowing that we are imperfect and that there is more. I I feel like I'm constantly transforming myself every day, mm-hmm. but I'm always working on myself and um, and not in a perfect way. I don't sit here and meditate 20 minutes. I do different practices, all different kinds of things. And um, it really makes a difference because I feel more in myself that way. Do you think that we, there's a point in which we do need to fracture to come back to our wholeness? Well, I think we have to be in touch with the fracturing that we already have. Okay. So Mm -hmm. uh, in Kabbalah, they call it shattering. There was the shattering of the vessels. So there was the wholeness and then there was the shattering, and then there's the reconciliation, the healing. And um, so everything was all one, and then it was split and separate, and then it was relational after the shattering. So I believe that that's really just another way of saying what you said, that there there are fractures in us because it's part of the human experience. And I think it's more than just the human experience. I mean, I have one of my cats laying here. It's definitely part of the feline experience. I used to have lots of dogs, definitely that. And if you walk in nature, walk through nature, just even looking at a tree, all the different ways the 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 trunks are shaped and the the limbs, you know, move. And it's all there's not a perfect way for a tree to grow. There's not a perfect way for a plant to grow. Um and it knows how to grow, you know, if it's watered, if it's nourished properly, it knows how to grow. It's pretty yeah. cool. That's a great analogy. It's Thank beautiful. You. So many people that I work with, um, <clears throat> they're in pain quite often. And really what I can identify about some of that pain or, or a bulk of it, it's not really what's happening to them, it's what they're saying to themselves about what has happened to them, right? And you talk about that in um, chapter 33 about wholeness. So I like what you say, you say, if I was saying something negative myself, I might hear that voice and respond to it in a compassionate way, whereas in the past, I would curse it and summon it to be exiled. So now I say, oh, hi, I hear you. And that's not true. Or I laugh and I say, hi, acknowledging that voice in some compassionate way. It's pretty cool to experience this. I'd love for you to talk about this because this is so important for people to understand. (laughs) First, what I had to do is I had to wake up. (laughs) I had to wake up to the fact 
that I was cursing myself or that I was saying how bad I was. I, you know, I had this core belief that I was bad. I think I wrote that in one of the chapters that I had to wake up to that I was really bad. So I had to wake up to all the different ways, all the different things that I could say to myself. I had to make it conscious because if I didn't make it conscious, you know, it was the gerbil in the cage. I was going to keep going on and on and on and on and on. So it seems to me, because I've been working on this for a very long time, I'm in my late 60s, it seems to me that it just keeps transforming and then that voice is still there sometimes, maybe when I'm under stress um, or... um, like like during going through this moving experience, I, w- I start to doubt my intuition. Now, I was a little bit surprised, but okay, this is what I was going through. I start to doubt myself with all the, because we, we went through a lot of difficulties um, with the purchase of the apartment. And um, so not the selling of the house, that was easy peasy. Um, so... But I knew that in deep inside that I was going to be, that we would be fine wherever we were. But I'm usually very able to intuit. Oh, like when we came to see this apartment, I sat here and I closed my eyes and I felt it and it felt good. Felt like I was going to live here. Then I started to doubt myself. So the doubting of the self, I would say was the present day cursing of myself or saying I'm stupid, I don't know what I'm talking about, bah, 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 bah. all those negative kinds of things like taking away really don't feel so good about yourself. Don't, don't, who do you think you are? Those kinds of things, which I did to myself for a very long time and it kept me small um, and safe. There's a way to be safe and not have to feel so small. So as I woke up and become, became conscious of all the things I was saying to myself and, and learned that that's really not true. Um, so what, I made a mistake. So what, so what if, you know, I, I did something or said something or so, so what if the apartment didn't go through, we would have rented something. So um, there's always a plan B. One one of my girlfriends said, I'm so happy you have a plan B. Because I, I said, oh, I was looking at rentals all weekend. So, um, there's, always, there's always another option, you know? We, there's always options that, that we have, you know, if we don't lock ourselves into these th- rigid ways of thinking. Yep. It's like, I'll only be safe if it's like this. I'll only be safe if this happens. And that's not true. That's, that's right. Not true. But We're much more resilient than we give ourselves credit for, right? have to open up to the that possibility you know you have to wake up to I'm holding on so tightly I've noticed in my life whenever things didn't go the way I wanted them to it always worked out for the best it always worked out better you know because we don't always know what's best for us sometimes you know whatever forces the universe God spirit whatever we want to call it sometimes they that knows much better for us than we do and sometimes it gets in the way 
and make something different happen. Like when we were, when we moved, we moved from Baltimore to Florida and um, we were trying to buy a house. And I think we put contracts, we tried to put contracts on three different houses. I was feeling kind of desperate that I wanted a house. Had any of those houses happened, I would not have been happy, but they, none of them happened. One case, the, the real estate agent didn't even put the offer through, another one rejected it. You know, it was like three things, it was like, boom, boom, boom. What is going on here? And then my house showed up. So, you know, I, it's the same kind of thing. Like if you're, if you're, you know, driving in traffic and you got to get somewhere and you're cursing the person in front of you because they're going extra slow or, you know, <laughs> I always say, thank you, because there's a reason for this. I always try to find a reason for everything rather than trying to see it as wrong. Right. There's always there's always something we could take from a situation. Mm -hmm. You know, like there's certain things that I can't uh, make sense of. Childhood cancer, children dying really young, right. earthquakes, so on, so on. Because right. it brings so much horrible suffering and and tragedy, really. Mm -hmm. So I can't make sense of it, but there's something to learn. Like, like yeah, there really is climate change. There really is something going on here that's not like fires in in Maui. Oh my God! Right. So the we always have an opportunity to wake up and say, okay, how come, how come the systems of the water weren't thought out before there was a problem up in Rhode Island also with there's a fire just I think last week. So people aren't paying attention to climate change the way we need to. And we, we need the younger generation to really help us if, if we're going to exist. Yeah. Right. Um, so with all this wisdom, and there's a lot of it here, Thank you. Get it. Okay. <laughs> um, this, this book is really, really great. So for my listeners, you know, you, wait a minute, I'm trying to get the right lightings here so I can get the, the whole sort of there. Okay. <laughs> um, <clears throat> really great book, really inspirational. And, um, you do, you take us on your journey. You really show us. You know all the all the the, the pivot the, the ups and the downs and things that you went through to get to where you are yeah. um you know and and uh, about those you know the way that we tend to talk to ourselves i mean i think no matter how much you work on that there will always be times where you go why did i say that and it's <laughs> so stupid and then <clears throat> but now when i do that i realize that's making me feel really bad. And then mm -hmm. I'm thinking, then I think about it and I'm like, well, those people aren't making me real, feel really bad. It's me. <laughs> I call myself on it and I'm like, you know, cut it out. This is not, you, you, you don't need to do this to yourself. And then I stop. But I think we all kind of have to be aware of um, what we're telling ourselves about ourselves. Um, and we can stop it, but you're right. You have to bring it to consciousness. You have to be aware uh, that you're doing it and most people aren't initially it's one of the things one of the first things i have people do really is to you know i say in the week between now and, and next time i see you i want you to listen to what you're saying to yourself and maybe write it down you know mm -hmm. you don't have to change it i just want you to be aware of it and that can be that can be a huge breakthrough for people Absolutely. because they realize oh my gosh i'm doing this to me right 
Yeah, it's a real wake up call. <clears throat> it is. So closing words of wisdom, if you have any, Eileen. Um, <clears throat> just be in touch with where you're at as best as you can and allow yourself to trip on the journey <laughs> and back up and, um, and there's support. You don't have to do it alone. That's really important. And whether you're <clears throat> listening to podcasts or um, seeing people uh, to help support you, you don't have to do it alone. You can, I don't think you can do it alone. Right there. You need there. a different perspective that's outside of you. you know, there's a therapist or a coach <clears throat> or, uh, or a therapist or a coach. <laughs> right. Um, it really, really, really makes a difference. <clears throat> Um, and if you don't like the first person you talk to, talk to somebody else. You don't have to stay where you're at. That's you know? exactly right. I completely agree with you. It is so important that we work these things out. And it's it, there's no stigma in getting a little bit of help. Sometimes it's just a little bit that you need. It's not going to be a whole makeover, you know, a whole do-over of you. Sometimes it's just a tweak here and a tweak there that can just release so much. So I'm glad that you said that. Well, thank you. It's been a great conversation. I knew it would be. <laughs> um, <clears throat> good luck in your new condo or your new apartment, wherever you are. And uh, it's, it's just really been fun talking to you. I've enjoyed it. Thank you, Randy. Have a great day. Take care. You too. Be well. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. <clears throat>